Hey guys, G here, with a quick warning before we, we begin today's episode. Uh, starting from the quote at the very beginning of this episode, we leap directly into some pretty heavy topics that we feel as hosts that we are obligated to warn you about. So for today's episode, we are releasing a trigger warning for mentions of rape, racism, violent murder, and the violence and oppression of entire communities that sparked the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s and still continues today. So please, 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 if you feel like you need to stay away from these topics and themes at the moment or completely, don't feel bad about skipping this episode. We would rather you feel safe than listen to every single episode of ours. So it was actually even emotionally challenging for us to record. So you're in good company. Enjoy the show. After Images 1. However the image enters, its force remains within my eyes. Rock-strewn caves where dragonfish evolve, wild for life, relentless and acquisitive, learning to survive where there is no food. My eyes are always hungry and remembering. However the image enters, its force remains. A white woman stands bereft and empty, a black boy hacked into a murderous lesson recalled in me forever, like a lurch of earth on the edge of sleep etched into my visions, food for dragonfish that learn to live upon whatever they must eat, fused images beneath my pain. 2. The Pearl River floods through the streets of Jackson, a Mississippi summer televised, Trapped houses kneel like sinners in the rain. A white woman climbs from her roof to a passing boat. Her fingers tarry for a moment on the chimney. Now awash, tearless, and no longer young, she holds a tattered baby's blanket in her arms. In a flickering afterimage of the nightmare rain, a microphone thrust up against her flat, bewildered words. We just come from the bank yesterday, borrowing money to pay the income tax. Now everything's gone. I never knew it could be so hard. Despair weighs down her voice like Pearl River mud caked around the edges, her pale eyes scanning the camera for help or explanation unanswered. She shifts her search across the watered street, dry-eyed. Hard, but not this hard. Two tow-headed children hurl themselves against her, hanging upon her coat like mirrors until a man with ham-like hands pulls her aside snarling she ain't got nothing more to say and that lie hangs in his mouth like a shred of rotting meat three i inherited jackson mississippi for my majority it gave me emmett till his 15 year puffed out like bruises on plump boy cheeks his only mississippi summer whistling a 21 gun salute to dixie as a white girl passed him in the street and he was baptized my son forever in the midnight waters of the pearl his broken body is the afterimage of my 21st year when I walked through a northern summer, my eyes averted from each corner's photographies, newspapers, protest posters, magazines, police story, confidential, true, the avid insistence of detail, pretending insight or information, the length of gash across the dead boy's loins, his grieving mother's lamentation, the severed lips, how many burns his gouged-out eyes showed sewed shut upon the screaming covers louder than life, all over the veiled warning, the secret relish of a black child's mutilated body fingered by street-corner eyes, bruised upon livid bruise, and wherever I looked that summer, I learned to be at home with children's blood, with savored violence, with pictures of black broken flesh, used, crumpled, 
and discarded, lying amid the sidewalk refuse like a raped woman's face. A black boy from Chicago whistled on the streets of Jackson, Mississippi, testing what he'd been taught was a manly thing to do. His teachers ripped his eyes out, his sex, his tongue, and flung him to the pearl, weighted with stone in the name of white womanhood. They took their aroused honor back to Jackson and celebrated in a whorehouse, the double ritual of white manhood confirmed. 4. If earth and air and water do not judge them, who are we to refuse a crust of bread? Emmett Till rides the crest of the pearl whistling twenty-four years. His ghost lay like the shade of a raped woman and a white girl has grown older in costly honor. What did she pay to never know its price? Now the Pearl River speaks its muddy judgment, and I can withhold my pity and my bread. Hard, but not this hard. Her face is flat with resignation and despair, with ancient and familiar sorrows, a woman surveying her crumpled future as the white girl besmirched by Emmett's whistle never allowed her own tongue without power or conclusion unvoiced. She stands adrift in the ruins of her honor, and a man with an executioner's face pulls her away. Within my eyes, the flickering after images of a nightmare rain, a woman wrings her hands beneath the weight of agonies remembered. I wade through the summer ghosts, betrayed by vision, hers and my own becoming dragonfish to survive the horrors we are living with tortured lungs, adapting to breathe blood. A woman measures her life's damage. My eyes are caves, chunks of etched rock tied to the ghost of a black boy, whistling, crying, and frightened. Her toe-headed children cluster like little mirrors of despair, their father's hands upon them, and soundlessly a woman begins to weep. 1981 Children gather round, come sit by the cannon fire. Come and join the conversation Children gather around If written works are your desire Come and sit beside the flame Of the cannon fire Hey guys, welcome to Cannon Fire, a nerdy literary podcast focusing on the stories, creations, and histories of literary figures too red-hot for the Western canon. I'm G, the editor and resident layman of the podcast. And I'm Kate, and I like books. Kate's the expert of the podcast. Well, one of the two experts. Zoe isn't here. She is the other expert. In this episode, we discuss Audre Lorde yet again. This is part two. She was a lesbian woman of color who was bold, unapologetic. She was a social justice warrior. She was amazing. She was very, very gay. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. How did you, I forget you about, forgot that? about that? <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know. Um, so this is normally where I would announce new patrons, sponsors... Um, but we don't have any yet because we have like a grand total of two listeners and that's including myself. We love you. All two of you. Well, I think there are three now because they're, and they're all part of the same family. All three of them are part of the same family. Four of the only five British people that exist. Yes, exactly. So instead of announcing new patrons and sponsors, I will just beg you 
like a lot to go donate to our Patreon for even more awesome nerdy content, which I will inform you about in our outro. And that's at patreon.com forward forward slash forward slash forward slash cannon fire. I get that wrong a lot. Backslash is used in like your Windows command prompt, your heavy hardcore programming. You use forward slash for web addresses. Okay, so stuff that I don't know about and then stuff that Caitlin does know about. And now sit back and relax into your lit class for today. Episode six, part two, deliberate and afraid of nothing. We are going to be talking about Audre Lorde's introduction, I think, to her activism in the 60s, because in 1968, she received a National Endowment for the Arts grant and became the writer-in-residence at Tougaloo College in Mississippi, where she discovered a love of teaching and she also met Frances Clayton in Tougaloo in 1972. And I firmly believe that her going down south to meet and teach in this time period definitely led her to a lot of hard oppression poems, including After Images. And After Images was the first poem of hers that I encountered. And it is very heavy and filled with rage and also despair yeah so i realized when you were reading that that i actually have heard of her um but it was briefly and it was not as much as i would have liked to study her because whenever i was in college my school i went on a two week long may term class that was a trip through several of the southern united states and it was a in it was, it was three classes pulled into one trip. And one of them was a leadership class. One of them was a history class. And one of them was a psychology class. And I was in the psychology class. And it was called the Psychology of Racism in the American South. And it was a very, very, very interesting class. I was emotionally exhausted after it because, oh, holy crap, man. And I believe that one of the other classes had to read several things by Audre Lorde. We didn't in my class because we were focused pretty heavily on the psychology behind it um, on both sides. Um, but they were studying the leadership of the civil rights movement. And so they studied her. But we, on that trip, we went to the Black History Museum in, in Kate. It's, it's in Memphis, right? Yeah. And then Kate and I went to that as well pretty recently, I guess last summer. And it's very interesting. But whenever I was there the second time, I picked up a book called The Blood of Emmett Till because I have heard over and over and over about Emmett Till because that's just a story that has stuck with me real hard. And so I picked that book up. And if you have not read it, I recommend reading it if you can handle because trigger warnings all around for that book. But if you can handle reading something that goes into pretty d descriptive detail, the horrors that this boy faced, it'll teach you a lot. Yeah, and this was, uh, this was clearly definitely written before a lot of truth about what happened that night came to being because it's only in the past, what, year or two years that we realized that the woman was lying the entire time. 
mm, past four or five years, I think. And not to blame her, but yes, to blame her because yes, she did screw up, but also she was being threatened by her, her brother-in-law and her husband, um, to stay quiet about it. They were threatening her life. Which is intrinsically tied to what Audre Lorde was saying. Yeah. Because white women need liberation from the white patriarchy and from the male patriarchy. Yeah. As much as anybody else, they just don't realize how entrenched they are in the system. Right. Yeah. She was seen as this, you know, little angel who could do no wrong. And her husband and brother-in-law played up on that hardcore and screwed her over and and in doing that halted investigation there were threats to other black members of the community Emmett Till wasn't even a member of that community he was from Chicago he was there visiting his uncle and he didn't know it's not that he didn't know better but he didn't know who he was dealing with yeah, and and this 14-year-old boy had to pay the price for for talking to a white woman or for claiming that he was talking to a white woman. He he, he wasn't. He was talking to her. He did talk to her. Um because he went into her shop. Okay. And bought something from the shop. He said stuff to his friends and his cousins outside. So supposedly what happened was Carolyn Bryant, who was the woman that was in air quotes, attacked by Emmett was 21. Emmett was 14. He walked into her grocery store and offended her. So he said something. It's possible that it was a dare from his cousins or one of their friends uh, what happened was he touched her hand when he exchanged money for candy. He also asked her for a date and then said goodbye when he left the store. Um, so he was, he was flirting, but, you know, that's what 14-year-old boys do. They flirt. And the only reason that this kid was killed is because it was 1955 and he was black and she was white. And for whatever reason, this 14-year-old boy made this woman behind a counter feel so unsafe by asking her for a date and touching her hand that she walked out to her car in anger to retrieve a pistol that she kept under her seat. And supposedly, Emmett whistled at her, Wolf whistled at her, and... She happens to be married into one of the most racist families, as well as one of the most well-connected families in this city. And so her husband, her brother-in-law, and two of their friends tortured this 14-year-old boy for hours and then threw his body into the Tallahatchie River, possibly while he was still alive. We don't know. That was never found out. There were witnesses. There were trials. The trials were a farce. These men were not punished for what they did. 
but the thing that they, I think, I believe the thing that they got mad at him about was that instead of putting his money on the counter, he put it directly in her hand. Ah, yes, that would be, yeah, to a white man in the South at that time. That would be very threatening. Uh Uh-huh. And also, Audre Lorde definitely understood the intricacies, what's the word? Intricacies. Intricacies, yes, of the situation because she understood that um, men in the South were not really concerned with white women's purity. They only used that to hurt black men. This is the whole uh, defense of the South trope that the patriarchy uh, devised to cause more harm to black communities was to say, oh, they'll have sex with our daughters, our white daughters, and we can't let that happen when actually white men were raping black women exponentially and getting away with it because they were in power. Well, and the two men that, the two, it was four men, four men that killed Emmett Till, I think only two of them were punished for it and they weren't punished for long enough. They never would be, not with where our country is now. Because we're still not punishing uh, white men for raping. Because... We're not punishing white men for a lot of things. Yeah. But there's the whole um, swimmer that got three months or six months. Brock Turner. Yeah. Yeah. Three months. Three months. So she was angry. And she had every right to be angry. Oh, yeah. And... That poem isn't a white hatred poem. That poem is look at what our society is. Look Look at at what you're putting our children through. Yep. It was focused very heavily on Emmett Till for that reason. Mm -hmm. Because as you guys mentioned in her in this in our last episode, she saw the world as her children. Mm -hmm. And that means Emmett Till was one of her children. Yeah. Emmett Till was like her son that was she saw his face on pages, on papers, on every street corner for an entire summer because Do his mother... yourself a favor and don't look that up. It's traumatic. His mother did that intentionally. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. His mother was a brave, brave woman. I have so much respect for her. Because she had his funeral be an open casket. She had it be an open casket. She fought with the uh, undertakers down in Mississippi because they wanted to bury his body there. They wanted to hush it all up. Um, And they had his body sent back. She had an open casket funeral and she hired reporters to come in and take pictures of the body to say, this is what they did to my son. Yep. And that, when I read that and heard that, that gave me chills because, and I started crying because that is... Excuse my French, but that is some brave, you know. I yeah, and it shows what black women have had to do to get anything noticed. Yep. Um, because she had to traumatize society for them to say something is seriously wrong. That's still the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to read this because. Oppression poetry was one of Audre Lorde's strong suits, but I want to bring it up because Audre Lorde started that movement in the 
mainstream. Like that poetry got her noticed by a lot of people because of how out and loud it was about these are the oppressions that her communities are facing. And it was poetry that hadn't really been heard before because in the Harlem Renaissance, the poets in that movement weren't allowed to speak out about their oppression in that way um, because their patrons wouldn't publish it, which is why the patronage system is problematic, is that they couldn't be fully um, outspoken the way Audre Lorde was. But there is a downside in this, and I'm going to speak very carefully about this because the downside isn't that oppression poetry is being written. It's that now, in 2019, oppression poetry is all people want to hear from young poets of color. And you kind of experience this with uh, the group Brave Young Voices. It's um, You can go on YouTube. The McElroys have talked about it on Wonderful before in terms of slam poetry. There is a, um, a, a poem that has a video to it with um, two performers that talk about oppression poetry and, and pigeonholing people into oppression poetry, which is the which falls along the same idea that in Hollywood, black actors can only get Oscars for playing roles within black oppression, meaning you get Oscars for 12 Years a Slave, you get Oscars for all of these historical pieces telling untold stories, but not focusing on the creativity and the endurance and the beauty and the life of black people only focusing on how they've overcome and succeeded this obstacle put in by class race sex oppression right because white people love a savior complex exactly and so the fact that audrey lord started this in the 70s the fact that we still don't celebrate Phyllis Wheatley for her poems on creativity, on her poems talking to the muse. The fact that we don't recognize that Audre Lorde also wrote um, explicit lesbian sex poetry that we will also uh, get into because she wrote lovely... Are, are we allowed to read that on this yes. podcast? <laughs> yeah, because her poetry <laughs> is uh, family-friendly, even if the Interesting. topics are... It's, that it, it's not that it's explicit, it's that it's explicitly lesbian. Yes. Okay. Um, but it, it it talks about the act of lesbian sex, the act of loving a woman, you know, and in a way that... I know a lot about that act. It's a great <laughs> act. It's fantastic. And she celebrated that, but... Parents cover your children's ears. We like to um, only focus on on these poems where she's angry against the oppressors, which she had a right to be angry at the oppressors. She also had a right to say look, this part of life is wonderful. Look at what my children are capable of being. Look at what the creative side of me is is producing. And we're still not allowing um, young black and brown kids to move past their oppression That's in a way that white kids are allowed to do. That's why I really liked Afrolatcha. Mm -hmm. Because it was all about this, just this one dude growing up. And his experiences were viscerally black, but that's not all he had to say. Yeah. And, and you I can really celebrate you can celebrate a perspective based on how someone walks through the world differently without them entirely focusing on my walk is oppressed. Right. Because there's so much more that these 
individuals have to offer. It's also why right now Angie Thomas's books on the come up and the hate you give are on the New York Times bestseller list, but people aren't celebrating Tommy Adeyemi's, Adeyemi's Children of Blood and Bone series, which is becoming a movie. Which I've heard like several podcasters talk about, not just talk about, rave about. Yeah. And we will Because that's what be I spend most it. of my time doing is listening to podcasts. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that there's this YA fantasy novel starring people of color that is wonderfully, beautifully written and a vision of a potential avenue for youth to see themselves liberated by, we're still focused on the realistic fiction aspect of what it means to be young and Black in American cities and be target practice for police officers. When we should allow for room for both stories to be uplifted. Right. Because, yes, they're facing this issue, this systemic issue, but also... That's not, like we said at the beginning, that's not all they are. Just right. like Audrey Lord, that's not all she is. When I was in, uh, in my senior year of college, I did a journalism class and I interviewed Professor Mentor's husband, who, <laughs> or Dr. Mentor's husband, who uh, was one of the people that Zoe went to Ghana with. Yes. And the the Ghana project, the, the Ghana study abroad project had been set up by black students who wanted to go to Africa because all of the study abroad options were in Europe or in South America or in Asia. And there wasn't really anywhere in Africa for them to go. And one of the reasons that he said that it was so important to them that they come up with this was that all that they saw of Africa was these, was the like Sarah McLaughlin backed starving children in the arms of exactly the angels and so far away <laughs> we do not have the <laughs> rights to that song yeah in 15 Trevor seconds Noah's 15 seconds amount with we the get. fly landing on the lip every single time did you see that bit that he did no but i believe you yeah trevor I, noah I did a whole imagine. bit about how south africa is only talked about with like the same shot of a child with a fly landing on the Have lip. Have we? Okay, I want all of our listeners, all two of you, <laughs> to right now go to Google and type in cities in Africa and look at the pictures of the cities in Africa because it's beautiful there. It's not this like desolate desert that's an underdeveloped. It's not what we have the image in our heads that it is because of those commercials. It's not that. It is just as caught up as the rest of the world. There are places in America that aren't as caught up as the rest of the world, just like there are places in Africa and Europe and and Canada and everywhere that aren't as caught up because of systemic issues. It's not because somebody is black or white. So just think about that. Some example cities are Jayburg in um, South Africa, Johannesburg. Yeah. Uh, there's also Kumasi in Ghana that I went to. There's also Accra in Ghana that are super, super developed, super widespread, bustling cities with gorgeous, gorgeous crafts and technology, and they are accomplishing things that we are not giving them space to show the world. Right. Check your prejudices. 
basically. Also, stop forgetting Egypt's in Africa. Right. Yeah. Don't put Egypt in history in the Middle East as like a separate entity from Africa. If you herald Egypt as a wonderful upstanding civilization, but you ignore that Timbuktu had libraries and universities because it was in the uh, kingdom of Mali, you are ignoring how profoundly ahead of the world Africa was during Europe's Middle Ages. Egyptians were black at that time. There are fewer black Egyptians now because of the inter intermixing uh with europeans but that's true pretty much everywhere and morocco's gorgeous and too it's, it's, and morocco's yeah. in africa like there are so many areas in africa that are that look so different from other areas because it is larger than china the u.s europe combined on one landmass that is how big this continent is and on western maps it looks the size of greenland Anyway, the point, but the point is that these students created this study abroad program with these professors because they really wanted to see Africa the way Africa actually was. And that's the problem with only showing the oppressed narratives is that it's representation at its absolute base level. It is incredibly disheartening to only see negative portrayals of yourself or only see harsh portrayals of yourself or only see portrayals when you are fighting because fighting isn't all you... It's quite honestly, not something that you can always be. Like, we have to have joy and creativity and brightness in our lives, and we have to see people like us having joy and creativity and brightness it's in their lives. why I hate Cowboys versus Indians movies. So the thing that we talked a lot about um, on the Ghana trip was the fact that when we were interacting with youth in the cities that we visited, when we were um, going into the marketplaces, when we were visiting friends and family of our guides, what they are sold of America is Hollywood and New York City. They are sold what looks to be the best and the brightest and the most ahead and the highest paid aspects of America. They don't, they aren't sold the fact that Flint doesn't have water for Four and five years. Eight. Six. I think it's eight? more than that. Yeah. Wait, how long has Flint not had water? Had clean water? Longer than we've known about it. Yeah. Five five years. Five years. So they don't know that Flint residents don't have drinking water and haven't had drinking water for the past five years. Since we started school. They don't know that th we have one of the highest... Um, children hunger issues in the yeah. developed world we have the highest uh mother mortality rate in yeah. birth in the developed world yeah they, they aren't sold those images they don't see the class hardships all they are shown is that image of the star making it and and getting a breakthrough and making millions of money which they have never seen in their life before and all they are shown of africa are those types of commercials they are sold in africa they are sold the image that africa is the poorest landmass they are not shown they are not celebrated in their countries on their airwaves it is radical and important to celebrate the people that are trying to break that story because that is an incorrect story. But it's something that the system that some colonized countries in Africa are passing down because of who colonized them. 
Yeah. It's, it's very, very depressing to talk about this, but it's very important to talk about this because Africa has a lot to offer and we do not need to keep exploiting its people and its land resources because that's no way to move forward in a nation, in a world. I will go on so many rants about inequality. Moving on away from oppression poetry. The oppression poetry that Audre Lorde did uh, was a caveat to a lot of the activism that she did in response. She wrote poetry about things that her communities were experiencing and the oppression that they were feeling of the systems that they were within, but it gave her fuel to say, we can fix this. We need to get groups together to fix it. We need to get Uh, collectives together. We need to get people who are thinking the same, who are intelligent people that understand how the system was built to know how to deconstruct it. And she did this in various ways. Um, She was a member of the Combahee River Collective, uh, which was a collective of radical black, lesbian, and queer women in the 70s and they believed quote our politics initially sprang from the shared belief that black women are inherently valuable that our liberation is a necessity not an adjunct to somebody else's because of our need as human persons for autonomy and they also say that in their statement that they published um quote we believe that sexual politics under patriarchy is as pervasive in black women's lives as are the politics of class and race. We often find it difficult to separate race from class from sex oppression because in our lives they are most often experienced simultaneously. We know that there is such a thing as racial sexual oppression which is neither solely racial nor solely sexual, e.g. the history of rape of black women by white men as a weapon of political repression. They also were socialists. They also were for dismantling um, the capitalist system. And Audre Lorde was a member of it. She wasn't the only member of it. She does not exist in a vacuum. Their other members included um, the creator, uh, Barbara Smith, I believe, is one of the founding members. Also, Beverly Smith and... Shirlene McRae and Ceci Alfonso and Cheryl Clark and Demita Frazier and Gloria Akasha Hull and Eleanor Johnson and Helen L. Stewart and Sharon Page Ritchie. Like, this was a group of women that had been erased from feminism debates, had been erased from the civil rights movement, had been erased from uh, gay history because they were in the intersection of all of that. And they were like, we need to be as radical as possible. So she joined that movement and they met up and they brought their writings and they, you know, it's the whole idea that women create their own community. And these women just were able to write it down and have it published in a way that Lanier couldn't, in a way that Phyllis Wheatley couldn't talk about. Is anyone else going to talk? Am I going to lead this whole episode? I can do that. Honestly, you have a lot of information that I wasn't expecting. <laughs> I mean, I can go on in uh, the 70s and 80s. She then moved back to Staten oh, Island. I, I can do that. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, from <laughs> 1972 to 1987, after she moved back from uh, Tougaloo, 
She lived in Staten Island, where she co-founded Kitchen Table Women of Color Press. And she was also teaching there at Howard, I believe, again. And then her residence in Staten Island is actually considered a New York City LGBT historic site. Um, because she lived there for so long and she did so much work there. An important thing that happened to her within that time is that in 1980, she was diagnosed with breast cancer and had a mastectomy and wrote a whole book about it called The Cancer Journals. And she even turned that into activism because she, she was thinking about prosthetics and she said, prosthesis offers the empty comfort of nobody will know the difference but it is that very difference which i wish to affirm because i have lived it and survived it and wish to share that strength with other women if we are to translate the silence surrounding breast cancer into language and action against this scourge then the first step is that women with mastectomies must become visible to each other and she basically turned her own struggle into a avenue for recognizing strength um which i think is a whole big part of her viewpoint on the world is turning something that could be very awful and turning it into a point of strength and into a point of collective and community because because she looked at this really hard thing that happened to her and was like i know i can make a community with others about this yeah i haven't read the cancer journals but basically that entire quote is the sum of the um free the nipple campaign (laughs) that's happening in the 21st century with women saying why do i have to wear a top outside if men are able to exercise shirtless and this is a movement that a lot of people might uh, misconstrue as oh um women want to show off their bodies but it's also a point of strength for women who have had to go through mastectomies and and want to celebrate the fact that they are survivors and that they have lived past it there's a great community involved in this movement that Audre Lord commented on She also, in the 80s, helped found the Women's Coalition of St. Croix, which is an organization dedicated to assisting women survivors of sexual abuse and intimate partner violence. Um, So she was trying to find every single community that was going through struggles. And she's like, I am an author. I am a teacher. I am a poet. I um, can give a voice to these communities that the news wouldn't really talk about. And also kind of going off of that one of the questions we always have about these works is why aren't they in the canon include them in the canon you guys and one of the things you know why i know why but um one of the kind of evidences for her accomplishing so much and being of such cultural value is how she has been regarded after her death and even while she was alive by the people of her communities i can talk about the like book awards and literary awards she got. She got the National Endowment for the Arts grant in 68. She won the American Library Association Gay Caucus Book of the Year Award um, in, yes. 19, in 1981. In 1989, she got the American Book Award for a, bur- a burst of light. But I think the things that she would be probably more proud of is actually things that have happened posthumously. There was a community health center in New York founded in 1983 for the city's LGBTQ population called the Callan Lord Community Health Center, and it was named after her and Michael Callan, who was a gay singer-songwriter who was an AIDS activist. That actually leads into my question that I was going to ask just now. What was her involvement in the AIDS crisis? Because she was alive during that, and and she, she was the way she acts leads me to believe she would have been involved. The AIDS crisis of the 80s is 
one of those hard to discuss topics um, for many reasons, but in a lot of depictions about the AIDS epidemic, there wasn't a whole lot of community building within the LGBT community for various reasons. The Normal Heart is about the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s in New York. And in that movie, the people who were trying to get the government to take the crisis seriously, I believe there was only one or two lesbians who were helping out this group of gay men that were experiencing it. And there's this disconnect between communities in LGBT history that our community hasn't really answered and hasn't really critically talked about. And there's been a lot of erasure in the mainstream flamboyant gay men communities in the big cities. There is a lot of exclusion of lesbians from those spaces. It's seen in uh, the movie Pride, which took place in England, which showed the cooperation between this group of gay activists and this coalition of minors. And you see it again in, in The Normal Heart, where unfortunately there hasn't been a whole lot of bridging the gap between what liberation means it kind to of certain people. reminds me of the discussion that I've seen several times in, in that idea that young LGBTQ plus people are not respecting the elders in our community. And it's because for, it's for a lot of reasons. And a lot of it's just because a lot of us are pretentious and think that we know better, but a lot of it is because we don't have interactions with them because they're not there. They died. They died. And a lot of times there was a lot of sexism coming from some of the outspoken gay men. Yeah. I believe That's in my heart, true. I can't see Audre Lorde ignoring the crisis. We don't have any information on if she was helping out with people in her life who she knew that were going through this crisis. I mean, her husband was gay so, or her, her ex-husband was true. gay. Yeah. So listeners, if you guys know anything about that, please email us and let us know because we would love to find out that's always true that's always you're always welcome to email us if you have any questions if you have any extra information that we didn't cover because we can even go back to some of these authors and if we've got enough information we can make a whole new episode about it so just let us know yeah because that that is a very good question that you you posed because she was very focused on the feminine side of liberation a whole lot of it wasn't really liberating men from themselves. It was just changing the system that put men in a better position inherently. An example of this, she helped establish sisterhood and supportive sisters uh, in South Africa to benefit black women who were affected by apartheid. Um, and she wrote poems about Winnie Mandela, who was a very radical, very scary woman in South Africa. Just because I know we don't know much about her involvement with AIDS, but there is the Audre Lorde Project, which was founded in 94, which is a Brooklyn-based organization for LGBT people of color. Mm -hmm. And they do do a lot of AIDS and HIV activism as part of their uh, mission statement. So I don't know if that's a direct influence from her, but I do know that was that created in her name or did she create that and they she, just it was in her name okay or no she, they they created it like they named it after her i okay. she would have died she died before yeah it was started okay 
but that's that's a very good point. If you're curious about the Audre Lorde project, uh, feel free to look it up and see what you could do to get involved with that because it's a part of activism that is overlooked is how issues affect youth of color. Um, and a lot of times that most high-risk youth of preventable diseases are of color in America. Um, in 1992, she received the Bill Whitehead Award for Lifetime Achievement from Publishing Triangle. And in 2001, the Publishing Triangle created the annual Audre Lorde Award, which honors works of lesbian poetry. And then in 2014, she was inducted into the Legacy Walk of Chicago, which is an outdoor public display that celebrates LGBT contributions to world history and culture. It's kind of like the Freedom Trail in Boston, but more gay. I want <laughs> to go to both. Patreon. <laughs> um, did you mention that she was the New York State Poet Laureate? I have not yet, no. Speaking of which, we've been recording for another 45 minutes. Yes. Should we... I mean, we still haven't talked about the master's tools or um, the uses of anger in full. We do need to devote time to her essays. Yes. So with that being said, the next episode, that is what we will start with, is the fact that she was what? Say that again? The poet poet laureate of New York State. Cool. So she was a badass (laughs) is what we're getting at. But until then... Western grammar is a white colonial construct. Bye. Bye. Caitlin, say bye. Bye. (laughs) So that's all for part two of Audre Lorde. Uh, Cannon Fire was created by Caitlin Porter, who's sitting right next to me. That's me. Zoe Bergmeier-Sweat and me, G. Daly. Thanks to Alan Hardison for our theme song and Brittany Barrel for our banner art. If you want even more awesome, nerdy content, you can donate as little as $2 to our Patreon, where you'll get access to bonus content, um, such as monthly up, uh, life updates. Those monthly life updates may be drunken life updates, maybe not. And also rants, which also may be drunken, maybe not. You won't ever know, but I'll know. As well as a shout out on the podcast. And that's actually just our first tier. So visit us at at patreon.com forward slash cannonfire podcast, which I said wrong at the beginning of the show. Dang it. Cannonfire podcast, not just cannonfire. So patreon.com forward slash cannonfire podcast. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at cannonfirepodcast at gmail.com or you can follow us on twitter at cannonfirepod and facebook and instagram at cannonfirepodcast if you want other resources or our transcripts you can go to our website which caitlin is caitlin like completely created the website she's a tech genius and i don't understand how she did it so like if you need help just ask her um and that is Uh, cannonfirepodcast.com so you can also listen to every episode there So that's cool. Every episode has a link to the transcript so you can read along, listen to us be idiots, listen to us freak out nerdy about nerdy stuff, whatever. If you like Cannon Fire, please, 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 please recommend us to your friends and also subscribe to us and rate us on iTunes or wherever you find podcasts. Because that is the best way to help our podcast grow because we don't advertise. We don't have money. 
because we're a bunch of 23-year-olds. And even if we did have money, we wouldn't spend it on advertising because the man is not who we subscribe to. No. See, I would spend it on, like, clothes and food and food for my cat and clothes for my... Wait, I don't have to spend money on clothes for my cat because Caitlin makes clothes for my cat. We're ridiculous. It's fine. We need to start posting pictures of the (gasps) beclothed cat on our website. That has to be... Yes. Okay, on our website and on our Patreon. Subscribe to our Patreon and you'll get pictures of the most adorable cat in the world. His name is Remus and he has blue eyes and he's adorable. And he will love you forever. So, that's it. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.